It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK and a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, podcaster, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And so, in this episode, I sat down with one of the most vocal Brexiteers, Andrew Bridget, MP for North West Leicestershire, the Midlands Machiavelli, as some call him. And we were joined by, wait for it, na 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 na, na 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 na, hey hey hey, Catherine Barnard. Yes, I have rejigged the Crystal Palace fans' Wilfred Zaha chant for Catherine Barnard, Professor of EU Law at Trinity College, Cambridge, and UK in a Changing Europe Fellow. What about it? Um, We recorded this chat Wednesday morning in the febrile atmosphere at Westminster. Uh, We knew then that uh, Theresa May would face a vote of confidence. Obviously, we didn't know the result at that point. In fact... Andrew went straight from our recording to do some TV on the Victoria Derbyshire show where he caused a bit of a stir by refusing to share screen time with Conservative Party Deputy Chairman James Cleverley. Uh, And given what happened later that day, Andrew's comments on democracy and simple majorities are particularly uh, piquant. But we started by talking about what he wants to happen with the leadership uh, views that I suspect have not changed in the light of events in the last uh, couple of days. So, here we go. I want uh, the Eurosceptic wing of the Conservative Party to rescue Brexit. I want, uh, instead of what normally happens, which is everyone stands, we're a bunch of individuals, and we split the uh, Eurosceptic vote, Um, I'm hoping that we can coalesce around one candidate who's got the best chance of getting into the last two. And I, I'm confident if, if we get a Eurosceptic, a Brexiteer, someone who believes in Brexit, into the last two, and the membership, um, I believe, will back them. Who? Uh, whether that's... Well, I think it's got to be someone, given where we are, uh, someone with cabinet experience. So Jacob Rees-Mogg's ruled himself out. Right. Um, so you're talking... And it's got to be, for me, a Brexiteer who's actually resigned from the government, who haven't, haven't got his his or her hands in the blood of the withdrawal agreement. Oh. Um, so we're talking Rab, Boris, Rab, Davis, David Davis, Boris. Esther McVeigh. Right. Yeah, possibly Pretty Patel. Okay, right. But okay. I mean, what we don't want is them all standing, splitting the Eurosceptic vote, and then we end up in a Rudd Hammond runoff, which wouldn't suit me or my members in North West Leicestershire. You'd rather split the party than split the Eurosceptic vote. Well, Is that what you're saying? No, because. Um, I don't know if you... The party is an interesting concept. I mean, I've been through a change of Prime Minister, and I didn't back Theresa May, ever. Um, But you'll be amazed how a day after we've got a new Prime Minister, if if that's what comes to pass, um, the party will unite, um, and it will be business as normal. It didn't didn't unite terribly well under Theresa May. I think it did to start with. When she was... uh, I was completely... I mean, um, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I was classed as a rebel when I wanted a referendum, and we got a referendum. I fought the referendum for leave. I led leave for the East Midlands. We voted to leave in the East Midlands, overwhelmingly. 
5941, my own seat 6139, it wasn't close. Um, and then um, we got Theresa May, David Cameron, the Prime Minister said we're not a nation of quitters and then, then he quit and thing. Um, left us in the lurch a bit. Theresa May uh, had a coronation, she didn't have uh, an election by the membership, she was the last candidate standing. It was rather a brutal and ruthless campaign by her, I, I must say. Um, and then she said, you know, Brexit means Brexit, Lancaster House speech, we're getting control of our money, our laws, our borders, we're going to uh, leave the single market, the customs union, the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. And for two years, voting through the, the, uh, the withdrawal agreement effectively, leaving the European Union, I'm completely loyal. And then all of a sudden, from nowhere, left of field, comes this Chequers proposals, which are not, um, not effectively leaving the European Union, paying them a huge amount of money to talk about a future relationship instead of agreeing the future relationship. Two years of transition, uh, the backstop, and, and suddenly I'm a rebel again. Well, the amazing thing is, I haven't gone anywhere. I've, I've, I've been completely anchored in what I believe in and what I believe we promised the British people. Um, someone's moved, but it wasn't me. So, you know, whether I'm a rebel or a loyalist, um, I just stand up for what I believe in. So it's interesting, I mean, obviously, it, things are bumpy at the moment for reasons that we all know, but what you're not hearing so much for now from the uh, Brexiteurs is the, the, the positive aspects. We haven't heard the, that all the way through, and I was hugely suspicious when the Prime Minister and those around her never, ever uh, spoke about the positive vision for our country post-Brexit. And for me, um, it's absolutely crucial, because given the far left, Marxist uh, policies of the Labour Party, at the next general election, whenever that comes, and I think it's coming rather sooner than people might think, uh, potentially in the next 12 months, possibly in May next year, um, we're going to have to defend free market capitalism, um, something which I think we thought we'd settled across the political spectrum. Um, and if we can't, as a nation, do the free trade deals around the world, how can we uh, champion free market capitalism. The Conservative Party also has a problem with younger voters and we also have a problem attracting BME voters. Now, I want to be in a position where with free trade deals with the United States of America, Australia, New Zealand, India, China, that we, we, we're a global Britain, global trading, um, lifting billions of people with free market capitalism out of poverty and that we can offer opportunities for young people in Britain and in those countries to work in America, work in Australia, New Zealand, study in those countries, India, China, not just Europe, not just working in Bulgaria, Romania or France just across the border. And also I want an opportunity that through free trade deals with developing countries in Africa where we've got huge links through the Commonwealth and, uh, and Asia, that, that we can lift people out of poverty in those countries through trade, which I think we can do more sustainably and easier than we'll ever do with our huge aid budget. And that should be, if sold properly, very attractive to BME voters. Right, hang on, if you want to, just explain this to me, you want to uh, defend free market capitalism and yet you want to walk away from the massive free trade deal we have with the EU, right, we do have a free trade deal well, with the EU. Well, the EU is effectively a, a very protectionist block. Um, they, they put very large tariffs uh, to protect industries which are not actually in the United Kingdom. We don't need those tariffs. 
we don't uh, we don't grow oranges. Uh, you know, there's huge tariffs on on clothing and shoes to protect Italian inefficient producers, which all it does is actually putting up cost to the UK consumer, uh, keeping developing countries uh, from being able to trade with us, um, and, and, and actually is a, is a tax which we're paying over the tariff to the European Union. But most, most goods coming from the least developed countries in Africa come into the EU without any tariffs on anyway. Well, that's not. I don't. Think, I don't think that's true. Some of some of the food items are forty percent tariffs. Yeah, generally. But if they're coming from lesser developed countries, they're all zero tariff. It's everything but arms policy. So everything comes in tariff free except anything to do with weapons. And surely, um, just again, you want to make the case of free market capitalism. I absolutely get that. Business backs Theresa May's deal, doesn't no, no, it? Business. I mean, the CBI, you know, has Boris, of course, famously told business to do something very rude indeed. In, indeed. Well I, well, I was a, uh, an entrepreneur for mm. 22 years before I came into politics. I built a, a, a business up from scratch. Um, I was voted Young Executive of the Year yes. in Great Britain when I was young, <laughs> a long time ago. Um, I, used to, I, used to be chair, I used to be chairman of the Institute of Directors. Well, I was going to say, were you in the CBI or the uh, Federation of Small Businesses or anything like that? And I, I set up the East Midlands Business Forum with the CBI, uh, FSB and the Engineer Employers uh, Association um, as, as a, a combined voice of, of business. The CBI represent the very biggest companies in every sector in the UK. And what I will tell you from uh, working in, in, in deregulation is that the biggest companies uh, with the biggest market share, they love being in the European Union because large companies can cope with the extra regulations and the red tape. It is a barrier to entry to market, it protects their market share and it, and it discriminates against smaller companies. So all the biggest companies in every sector of industry in the UK will always want to be in the European Union because it's very, very protectionist of their position. Because they want to make money. They want to make money, but, but they also want to, and <coughs> when they make money, that makes jobs and makes taxes. I mean, that's but the market's there, and people are going to buy what they're going to buy. What they want is to maintain their market dominance, which is easier when when smaller competitors can't cope with the, with the excessive regulation of the European Union. So that is you, you, that, that's that's an undoubted fact. Um, it, but the the counter argument is, of course, if you know, I run a small gin distillery. I I'd like to run a small gin distillery, but. I'll drink to that. <laughs> yeah. I thought you really did there for a minute. I thought you were doing it. Talent no end. Is that for you in slip? <laughs> no, so imagine I run a gin distillery and I want to sell my gin or whatever my product might be to France, which is geographically my nearest neighbour. Um, bottles are physically heavy, so it's, clearly, it's, it's easier to sell short distances rather than long distances. Yep. And I'm going to have to comply with whatever rules that the EU set in order yep. to sell to France. And so whatever, and of course, with the UK won't have a say in making those rules. And that's going to be my problem. Well, I mean, well I that's the same, that's the same with every market. You, if you sell to America or any market, you have to comply with the rules of the market that you export to. I mean, if you export to Japan, you have to comply with the Japanese market. I mean, that's, that's how it works. But I mean, as far as tariffs are concerned, I mean, I'm very comfortable uh, with us leaving on what people call no deal, WTO, but we can immediately enter into talks for a free trade deal with the European Union and under WTO rules we can have up to 10 years of tariff-free trade while we sort out 
our free trade agreement. I think the European Union would agree to that. So effectively it would be tariff and quota free trade with the European Union between ourselves and them, even if we leave on no deal. And the no deal, I don't think we'll leave on no deal. It'll be better than that because the European Union need us, uh, need our money, uh, and they also, um, as, you, as you're well aware, I mean, they sold twice as much in goods to us as we sold to them. And the last time I looked when I was in business, the customer is always king. Ah, uh, just come on. I'm, I'm not the expert in the room, but I can see a problem there because well, the, ex- British, ex- the British ex- economy runs on services, you, right? Well, we sell services, uh, we buy goods. Um, we, are, we're a huge we sell services to Europe. We sell services to Europe. Well, yes, well, I mean, I don't, know what the, the service, I don't know what the services figure is, but you can't just focus on goods and not and ignore services, can you? Yeah, but we still have a 90 billion uh, trade deficit when you take into, into account the, the services. So, I mean, and the services we sell um, are, a lot of it's financial services and insurance. We're the best in the world at that, and we're going to continue to be the best in the world at that. And, and people say, well, the city can't cope with this. You know, do you know what the total EU-derived trade is for the City of London? What percentage? Around about 6 or 7% of, of, of uh, the City of London's trade. It's a global trading centre. It's, uh, it's 6 or 7%. The total, the total trade we do with the European Union is $274 billion. It's less than 10% of our economy. Um, and we've had reports from the Treasury saying, oh, we, we go on no deal, we, we lose 10% of our economy. Well, so, so no trade with the European Union, unless we've got a deal, all trade ceases, and it's not replaced by anywhere else. Well, anyone who understands markets knows that you know, nature of bottles a vacuum. We're not going to, so if you're not buying Italian shoes, we're not going to walk around barefoot, are we? Can I just come back to your point about trading on world trade deal terms, as, as you've put it, and the fact that there's this, what you talk about, about this 10-year rule, now, I assume what you're talking about is Article 24 of the GATT, and the fact is that you've got to have an interim agreement, an interim agreement which with has annexes and schedules that says very clearly that there is going to be a free trade agreement. So you've got 10 years... Um, and to deliver it. To, but it, there's got to have been some sort of agreement already in place. And the, the problem, it seems to me, is what, going forward, is that if there is a no-deal Brexit, then you tear up whatever's been... But we're not tearing so anything up, are we? We're going to incorporate every one of the EU's regulations into UK statute law. So on the, on the day that we leave the European Union, on the 29th of March, even if we leave with no deal, we have full regulatory equivalents. And unfortunately, I mean, people, people think that, you know, Parliament's going to change the law immediately. It's a very long process. If we were to diverge regulatory on anything... You're talking well over a year after we've left the European Union before those regulations would be uh, fully passaged through uh, both houses and on the statute book. So on the day we leave, even if we leave with no deal at all, absolutely nothing's changed. And under I thought under WTO rules, which the EU have signed, um, unless there's a regulatory reason why you have to put extra checks in. It's illegal to do so. No. Non-tariff barriers. No, I'm afraid that's, that's, not, that's not right. Well, what, well, what, what will have changed? What will be the difference between the, the British widgets we are exporting to the EU the day after we leave, um, all created under the, or manufactured under exactly the same regulations as the day before? So why would the EU suddenly want to delay, delay those deliveries at the ports when 
to, to coin a phrase which I'm not that keen on, nothing's changed. <laughs> I thought the whole point was you wanted it all to change. But I, t- I mean, I, I, I hear what you say, of course, in the immediate few days there is an argument that the EU might not decide to insist on... Oh, I think they will. Through. I think they might do. Well, they will insist on their checks, yeah, because they will say... You are now, now a third, third country. country, yes. And, and so then the, the French will probably be the most vociferous of that, but it's quite interesting that there's not unanimity there. I mean, Belgium and Holland are really very keen to get that cross-border trade off the French. Um, I think one of the problems we have is all the ports, and I've spoken to the ports... Um, uh, at some length, uh, apart from Dover, everyone's very comfortable dealing under WTO with EU uh, imports. Dover needs to change its regime from turn up and go to pre-registration, which has causes them more problems. But all the ports in the UK are privately owned, and they'll, private businesses will make it work. All the ports on the continent are owned by their governments and are open to political interference. And of course, if the French want to cause us problems, um, uh, some official with a clipboard can delay. But, the, but we have to bear in mind that 90% of the hauliers that coming across on trans-channel trans, um, um, transport are EU-owned, and the vast majority, as we know, of the goods uh, are coming from the EU, so they'll be damaging their hauliers and their industries because um, services don't necessarily pass through the Channel Tunnel, do they? So, I mean, just on the subject of the hauliers, of course, if there, if there is a no-deal Brexit, then none of the hauliers' qualifications will be recognised and the UK hauliers' qualifications will be recognised. And they've got to get an international permit, and there's only 43 of them, which well, is not that's enough. A, well, I'm actually a qualified transport manager um, for road haulage operations. Did you drive a big truck? No, 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 I'm qualified to run the fleet, not oh, to drive. Not to I can drive a small truck. I, I, I didn't have well, a. Anybody could drive a small truck. Come on. Well, that's not true. You can't. <laughs> no. Well, it depends how small. How small are we talking? Seven and a half tonne. You now. I've got. Oh, that's a, that's a big truck. Sure. Seven and a half tonne. So it's massive. Well, it's What's not. A big it's truck? very small. It's very small. <laughs> it's a very small truck. What's the biggest like, truck you can drive? I can drive a seven and a half tonne, that's all. I've got grandfather rights on one of those. I never took the test, but I, I can drive it. I used to have a forklift licence as well. To, uh, but you won't be able to drive it in Europe after, Bre- after if there's a no, trade, no deal Brexit because you're qualified. Well, but they're, 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 the, that's, they're, they're the minor issues around no deal. I, we can it's not a minor issue with. for if you're in haulage. I mean, I heard a guy on the radio the other day on the Jeremy Vine show, you know, voice of the people going, there's all these foreign people in haulage. My industry's been ruined. That's why I love Brexit. If he's then going to find in a few weeks' time that actually he can't drive anything around Europe, he's going to feel really hacked well, off. I'm, I'm quite in with what Jacob Rees-Mogg says, that even if we go no deal, we should make some sort of payment to the European Union, not the £39 billion they're asking for, but some sort of payment to sort those issues out. I mean, basically, um, I've also got an airport in my constituency, East Midlands Airport. I thought you were going to say you had an airport there. <coughs> Catherine with her gin distillery and you with an airport and your trucks. Well, no, <laughs> trucks well, it's, it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's run by obviously Manchester Airport Group, but it's a major employment hub and obviously maintaining flights. And you've heard a lot of a, a lot of project fear about, you know, we won't be able to fly to Europe and whatnot. You know, using British airspace for European flights, I mean, that it's, it's a huge proportion. The vast majority of European airlines need to fly over UK airspace. So we, we're gonna, there's a deal there to make sure that there's no disruption to international um, flights. I mean, there is no, no industry more international than airlines, is there? I mean, that is an, is, is an international industry. And, and it, all we need is some, 
some sensible negotiations to uh, make sure there's not major disruption to both parties. But at the end of the day, if the EU want to give us a punishment beating for daring to leave the European Union, it is in with their, within their gift to do so. But I, I, I don't think as a nation, we're not, we're not someone who gives in to bullying and harassment. And, and it just really won't go down well with the, with the British people, who are really quite stoic about all of this. Once you get outside the Westminster and probably Greater London bubble. I mean, it's interesting you use the language of bullying and harassment against, against the EU. Because if we are such a magnificent trading nation, we should be able to stand up to this sort of... Well, I think there's been very weak negotiation by the Prime Minister. We've had many cars to play. And uh, I think Jeremy Paxman wrote... Uh, who's interviewed me quite a few times when he used to be in Newsnight. And um, he wrote a piece for the Mail on Sunday, and the title read, My Dog Could Have de Delivered a Better Negotiation Than, than This. And I think um, it's difficult to see how we could have negotiated much worse, to be honest. Um, Isn't it also difficult to see how we could do much better as well? I mean, that's... Well, well it's impossible now for Theresa May to do any better, because you can't have gone round for weeks saying, oh, this is the best deal I could possibly ever have got, and then go back to the EU and say, actually, I need, I need a better deal. I can't get it through the House of Commons. And she was told she was never going to get it through the House of Commons. I warned her in July that uh, Chequers was not going to be an acceptable basis for an agreement, and, and that has become come to pass. And what we've actually seen is a further humiliation that Theresa May has gone over to the EU in the last couple of days. She's effectively, politically, a drowning Prime Minister, and Angela Merkel throws buckets of water at her. Um, the, the thing I'm, I'm struggling with, just finally, before I know we're pushing for time slightly, so just before we move on to the, the features, is, um, I mean, you talked about business, about you know the ports being privately owned and airports being privately owned, um, but as I say, the CBI and business, as far as I'm aware, yeah, business and, wants certainty. Airports as well. Business. I'm not big fans of Brexit. I just no. wonder why. Why do you, you know, why do you think you're right on Brexit? What makes you? Uh, so vociferous in your backing for Brexit? Because I, my, my reason is about sovereignty. Sovereignty belongs to the people, it's not mine. I'm a member of Parliament for a, the blink of an eye in, uh, in human history. I'm a, a custodian of a little bit of power lent to me by the people of North West Leicester to represent them as long as they want to be represented. And I want a situation where, you know, we're in the mother of Parliaments the people in North West Leicestershire and the rest of the country can vote for a Member of Parliament who is responsible for making their laws and if they don't like the laws and the policies that we're bringing forward they vote me out and put in someone else who will do what they want and that is called democracy and accountability. When, when I asked the, the library at the House of Commons who are impartial and work for all MPs and all parties before the referendum what percentage of the laws that we passed in this place, in Westminster, were initiated in the EU, in Brussels or Strasbourg, and not, oh, here, not here. Not it was um, it was fifty eight percent, and I don't think anyone voted for that. That is a disputed so, figure, so right? That's so very disputed. I know that from doing a no. year of the. I don't. I don't know if it, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I know it's disputed. I know no, that. Nobody, much. nobody knows the answer because. <laughs> well, that's frightening in itself, isn't it? Because well, it depends. <laughs> and, it, and it's the never any. And it's never any less. They don't tell us what powers they want to take. There are, there are ratchet clause in the latest treaties we've signed up to. Um, and and when, when we have reports from the Treasury project fear that you know, there's no positive benefit of, of Brexit, well, what you're actually saying there is that 
having a government who are responsible for our trade policy, independent trade policy, our, our economy, uh, the, the, the stimulation and uh, the taxes that we'll put on, that we're better off letting Brussels make those decisions for us. Well, anybody who really believes that, they shouldn't be standing for a Member of Parliament. If we can't do a better job looking after the interests, whether that's the environment, the economy, defence, for our own country, working in cooperation with other countries, but not, not, not being run by them, um, then you're better off going and getting a job on the, uh, on the management committee of the local golf club, the parish council, or the Whoa, working men's club. Well, the golf club's talked down, that's no good. Well, I know, but I'm talking about the level, of, the level of responsibility and power is they're not actually making decisions that affect the whole country, are they? Well, that is true, but I'd say junior organisers at golf clubs so are deeply, very, I'm important deeply disappointed people, very important people. I'm deeply disappointed with other members of Parliament who, who have this attitude that, uh, that they would turn uh, the mother of all parliaments um, into something with rather less powers than the local parish council and subservient to uh, an unelected, unaccountable um, bureaucracy in Brussels. Well, that, that last point's not quite accurate, is it? Because well, it is, because, because the, the European people say, oh, we've got a European parliament, we've got MEPs. Well, A, no one knows who they are. No one ever votes in the elections very much. And, and the, the European parliament is no more uh, than, than a revising chamber. It's very similar to the House of Lords. It doesn't initiate uh, legislation. Legislation comes from the Commission, who are not elected and not accountable. And I think that's one of the problems with the negotiations over Brexit, is that we're a, a democracy, so people are out there, they don't want Brexit, so they've been out there for... Yes, yeah, and then, were then, there's, Western, the, then yeah. there's the leave, leave means leave on the other side, yes. uh, and then and you can have petitions, and you can have this, and you can have that, and we have all these ways that people say, I'm not happy, and they can write to me, and I can write to the Prime Minister, and I can put my letter in, there is that, because we are still some semblance of a, a, a democracy. Whereas, whereas we have all, all, the, all the hamstrings in our negotiations of dissenters, there's, there's very little dissent in the European Union because there is no feedback mechanism for the EU pushing us to a position where we could leave on no deal, which potentially could damage three million plus jobs in the European Union, dependent on trade with the UK, where are the protests in the German car workers against? Because there is no feedback mechanism. Because it's 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 basically a dictatorship. It's not it's not a democracy. Well, well the, the Council of Ministers, which has co-legislative powers, and the European Council, which has strategic direction, is comprised of uh, uh, representatives of the member states. So the Council of Ministers and seventy-two times and seventy-two times we've objected to policies and measures brought forward by the European Union. We've been outvoted. We, we try to change it from within, and, and, and it, it's... But out of the thousands of measures that have been adopted, and, and in recent years, I mean, it's only it's tiny, tiny percentages of, 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 those, of those measures. Um, but, I mean, of course, we would get outvoted in the same way that, in your view, you've been outvoted. Um, well, let's see, who, see whether we get outvoted this Tonight, evening. yes, Tonight, that's, that's just where I was going with that. that. We'll just fit in one feature that we do on every, every episode, which is the uh, in the unlikely event that this podcast has been insufficiently enlightening, or something like that. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Recommendations. What would you recommend uh, to anybody who says, I want to get a, a grip on Brexit? Uh, is there a book or a film or a song? Where would you point people? 
there are as many views on Brexit as there are people in the in the country. And I, I always take a, a bit of, uh, I get a bit upset when people say, I know why people voted for this or, mm-hmm. or didn't. Because there were 17.4 million people voted for Brexit and there were 17.4 different reasons why people voted on that day for that decision. But the answer is that that was the democratic decision of the people when faced with that binary choice and it needs to be delivered or there will be no confidence in in um, in, uh, in our democracy or any any uh, simple majority vote ever again and it was it's I'm a great believer in the collective wisdom of the electorate I don't think they often get it wrong what, is there anything that you've read or seen and you've thought that that gets to the heart of Brexit I think if you look at the publications by the Institute of Economic Affairs yeah. I think that's that's a good um, and of course I've been a member of the ERG we're going to put all our the European Research Group. I joined in 2010 as soon as I yes. got elected to Parliament, and we're going to put all those available online, so you can see all the briefing papers mm-hmm. uh, around our thoughts as to how we should be delivering Brexit for a the best result for regaining our sovereignty and for a future economic prosperity. Okay, and Catherine, what's your right. recommendation? My, my recommendation, given it's the end of the year, is the Matt cartoon book. <laughs> Matt, Matt is terrific. It's probably he's, as good as anywhere. He's the best, best cartoonist out there, and his book, his uh, Brexit cartoon, should be the best. And he's magic. He somehow he's does magic. actually go straight to the heart of it. He I does. don't know how he does it in a tiny little box. There's Andrew Bridgen, Tory MP, Brexiteer, member of the ERG group, and man who says the EU is basically a dictatorship. There you go. Uh, draw your own conclusions from that. Um, I said at the beginning he's sometimes known as the uh, Midlands Machiavelli. Uh, it's fair to say he's not universally popular among his Tory colleagues. Uh, Liz Truss made a joke at the recent Spectator Awards suggesting he should be banned from speaking to journalists. So, uh, yeah, a bit of a Marmite figure, I think it's fair to say, and uh, I'm sure you would agree, given some of the things he said there. Uh, you will either agree with them or violently, vehemently disagree with them. I would say violently, but then some of the language Andrew used was quite violent, wasn't it? Punishment beatings and all that sort of thing. Uh, if you want to get in touch to discuss anything in that uh, podcast, and let's face it, there was say, strong views uh, that are ripe for discussion, uh, I am at Political Yeti on Twitter, or the email address is UK in a Changing Europe Podcasts at gmail.com. You can get in touch with the UK in a Changing Europe directly. They are at UK and EU on Twitter, and their website is ukandeu.ac.uk. You can contact them there. You can see all the Brexit Breakdown podcasts there. If you go to my website, which is james-miller.com, you can see all the recommendations that all our guests have made on Series 1 and on this second series, which is now three episodes old. Uh, The music continues to be the Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. This has been the UK and Changing Europe's Brexit Breakdown podcast, supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Thank you and goodbye.